Welcome to Senior Living Visionaries, a podcast for senior living leaders who are looking to stay ahead of the curve in the industry. On this show, we feature leaders and innovators in senior living who are pushing the boundaries and creating new, effective services and solutions. And now, let's settle in as host Jennifer Drago connects us with today's guests. Welcome to Senior Living Visionaries, a podcast for senior living leaders who are looking to stay ahead of the curve in the industry. On this show, we feature leaders and innovators in senior living who are pushing the boundaries and creating new, effective services and solutions. And now, let's settle in as host Jennifer Drago connects us with today's guests. Welcome to Senior Living Visionaries, where we showcase the leaders and innovators who are shaping the future of senior living. I'm your host, Jennifer Drago, strategy consultant and CEO of Peak to Profit. And today my guest is Michelle Holleran, Dr. Michelle Holleran, and um, talk about an innovator in senior living who's truly been shaping our industry for years now. And I'm so excited. I've been so excited to meet you, Michelle, and then also now to have you on the podcast I'm going to introduce Michelle real quick. Michelle is founder and CEO of two firms, Hollering Consulting, which is a full-service research firm offering resident and employee engagement and satisfaction studies, as well as various other types of surveys. And that organization, you can tell us the history of it in just a second, but I know that's a long-standing organization that many will recognize the name of. And then you also have your own consulting practice that specializes in strategic planning, leadership development, and executive coaching. So we do um, some of the same types of services, and that's why I'm always excited to talk to like-minded individuals and um, see what you're seeing out there in the industry today. Michelle holds a PhD in organization and management from Capella University and an MBA from the Pennsylvania State University. Her dissertation topic was on culture change and leadership in aging services. She's facilitated many board retreats and strategic planning processes for aging service organizations across the U.S., and she's a frequent columnist for McKnight's Magazine on the topics of leadership, workforce retention, and resident engagement. Michelle is currently the chair of the Center for Innovation, a not-for-profit which oversees the work of the Greenhouse Project and the Pioneer Network. She was also the first chairperson and co-facilitator of the Larry Minnix Leading Age Leadership Academy, a year-long leadership development program for emerging leaders in senior living. She conceptualized and led a design team to formulate an international forum of senior living leaders and technology experts called the Innovator Summit, which was held in 2011 in Colorado Springs. Following this forum, she wrote Innovation in Senior Living for Leading Age. Um, she has served on the board of Eaton Senior Services, an affordable housing community based in Lakewood, Colorado. And Michelle created the Senior Living Women's Leadership Retreat, which is now in its seventh year. So welcome, Michelle. I'm so glad to have you here. So glad to be here, Jennifer. Thank you so much. You bet. And so because many will know your name and know about Holleran Consulting, why don't you just remind us what um, Holleran continues to do and then uh, w what you're transitioning to in this new year in 2024 in terms of your consulting. Great. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, Holleran Consulting has been around a long time. 
32 years uh, this year. And um, I'm really proud of what this organization has done. We have a great team and have a very large database, primarily of not-for-profit life plan communities. And what we've done is measure resident and employee satisfaction and engagement. <clears throat> and we feel like engagement is really important as well because that's the higher rungs of Maslow's hierarchy, mm -hmm. uh, fulfilling those types of needs regarding belonging, self-esteem, self-actualization, fulfillment of purpose, things of that nature, having a voice. Um, and so our tools measure that. And uh, we've been very successful and have so many clients around the country that are using that tool today and making some really uh, wonderful inroads in terms of resident engagement and employee engagement. Mm -hmm. So that's what Holleran has done. Um, recently, with the team, we've developed some great new tools around DEI measurement, around uh, well-being for uh, employees. Mm. Um, we have uh, something called the Resident Experience Survey now, and we have a culture survey that helps us identify uh, three different things uh, regarding culture. And so um, Holleran has been uh, innovating and exploring new products that meet the needs of uh, our clients for uh, the last several years. Now I'm transitioning, uh, starting in May, um, to an organization that I've led for probably 20 years now, but I haven't talked about it a whole lot. I do a lot of stuff behind the scenes and haven't really promoted it very well, I guess. Uh, it's DRMIC Consulting, which is an organizational development consultancy. And that really focuses on things like strategy, strategic planning, mm -hmm. uh, leadership development, uh, executive coaching, and uh, things of that nature. So that'll be my focus uh, going forward in May. And uh, Holleran will be led by uh, Chris Wally and um, Caitlin McCulley, um, who are really fantastic uh, folks. And I feel like I'm leaving the organization in great hands with those folks at the helm. Yeah, I agree. And I had the opportunity to interview Chris Wally a couple episodes back. We'll link it in the show notes so that um, if anybody wants to learn more about Holleran and some of the trends that um, you all are seeing in senior living, I think that was a really great episode um, that kind of opened our eyes after COVID, right? Mm -hmm. We're still, I know lots of people say that the industry um, has recovered or is in the later stages of recovery. I still see a lot of organizations that are floundering a bit. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in what we can learn from each other, which is one of the reasons I really want to talk to you today. Thanks. So, so thank you for that summary. I really appreciate that. And, you know, you and I are both in the strategy world. You, we've both been doing this for many years. And, um, you know, speaking of coming out of COVID and the challenges that um, we've had in recent years, the inflationary pressures, the recruitment and retention issues of staffing, um, lots of things going on, occupancy challenges, of course. You know, I, I, it's so important, I think, that an organization has a clear 
strategy, a clear business strategy in order to, um, so that the leaders can lead it on the right path to get to where they want to go. And in a recent interview that I did with Dana Walschlager from Plant Moran, partner at Plant Moran, that's episode 108, we talked about, you know, how she's engaged to do development projects in particular. So talking about um, either right-sizing campuses or repositioning or developing new parts of campuses. And she was struck by how many organizations that she begins working with that don't have a current strategic plan in place. And so then she has to back up and say, wait, the first thing we have to do is really figure out what your strategy is so then we can plan this development to integrate with that strategy. Strategy. And um, and I, too, see lots of organizations that maybe haven't updated their strategic plan in a while. So tell me your thoughts and concerns about the current state of senior living and specifically as it relates to strategy. And, and then give us your thoughts on what do you see as best practices when it relates to strategic planning overall. Sure. Well, uh, there's no doubt that strategic planning has dropped off the radar of a lot of organizations who were just trying to keep pace with, you know, the day-to-day. And I think part of it, too, is the fatigue level of the leadership and the fact that many CEOs are almost uh, gun-shy about asking their folks uh, to do strategic planning. And, and, and that's because it is a time-consuming thing. Mm-hmm. But the way I like to look at it, Jennifer, and not everyone will look at it this way, but I do, I think it's more about today's strategic thinking Mm -hmm. and to do this on an ongoing basis as opposed to this big daunting task of creating a strategic plan. Now, often it does result in that type of a plan, but if you do your strategic thinking and you kind of um, look at it as an evolving process where, you know, you're involving many stakeholders, and that's my first recommendation is that you don't limit it just to the executive team or even just the executive team and the board, but you get as many stakeholders involved as possible on the front end. And uh, that also includes residents who are very much uh, concerned about uh, their communities these days, um, how financially solvent they are. They're concerned about having a voice, uh, you know, the type of folks who are starting to come into our organizations these days and live on our campuses are pretty sophisticated and they feel that they have a lot to offer as well. In fact, I know of one campus, Kendall at Oberlin, who actually had a resident uh, lead their strategic planning process, which might sound pretty radical, but this uh, individual happened to have a lot of experience uh, being a former uh, college administrator with strategic plans. And so the CEO at that point, uh, Barbara Thomas, said, hey, why don't you partner with us and, and really show us how it's done? And so inviting residents into the conversation, I think, is more important than ever. So I would say that that's, um, you know, the first best practice that I would mm-hmm. suggest, that you involve a lot of different stakeholders, because everyone has a different perspective, and hearing all those voices it is really important. Mm-hmm. The second thing I would say, and this goes along with my first comment about it being a strategic thought process Mm -hmm. that's ongoing, um, involve your board in generative discussions uh, on a regular basis. In fact, I've seen a statistic lately that says that 70% 
of the board meeting should be talking about, um, you know, generative conversation, strategic conversation. Mm -hmm. And certainly a board has a fiduciary responsibility to oversee budgets and to make sure that the fiscal responsibility is there, that the fundraising is getting done, et cetera, et cetera. But so many of our meetings um, could be uh, refocused and re-energized by having people's fresh ideas come to the fore, as opposed to rehashing uh, information that could have been sent out in advance, mm -hmm. you know, sitting there and listening to talking heads, um, you know, that sort of thing is not as engaging. And I do believe that um, as we plan for the future, it's important to continuously educate each other about what's going on in the field and to uh, take a breath and uh, really have time for those generative, um, more expansive discussions at the board level. So I'd say that's another best practice. Um, <clears throat> something else that I think is important, a lot of plans tend to be overly complex and detailed. And I think that to start with, simple is better. Mm -hmm. In other words, I would suggest that you adopt no more than five key strategies or initiatives so that you can focus on those. And to importantly ask the question, what would the measurable outcome be that would show us we've been successful with this initiative? Um, and then have people who are on your team very involved in the planning around those five initiatives and for them to come up with the action plans and the timetables. If you um, outsource this completely to a consultant and you don't really involve your frontline people, they're not going to buy in too well. Mm -hmm. True. So I think that having a regular conversation about strategy with your with your key leadership team is important as well, Jennifer. Um, <clears throat> I also like using a traffic light to check on the plan on a regular yes. basis. You know, green means full speed ahead, everything's on track with timetables and systems and things that support that strategic initiative. A yellow would mean um, we're running into some roadblocks, mm -hmm. barriers that we need to discuss proactively and transparently. And then the red tells us we're just uh, hitting, you know, a brick wall. Mm -hmm. And maybe we need to readjust. Mm -hmm. And there's no shame in that. Um, you know, it's very important, I think, for the leadership team to monthly review the strategic plan. And I think at least on a quarterly basis, the board should be doing so as well. Yeah. So I really um, like those. Um, I, well, I like all of your recommendations. And I'm um, just going to hit on um, the last two in particular, because you said keep it simple. Um, only be working on, you know, three to five, um, I think, well, you said no more than five key strategies or initiatives. I think that's really key, especially in today's environment, because we know when we're operating a senior living community or multiple, the fires are going to come every day. <laughs> and so we need to, you know, in our time when we're not fighting um, some of those operational fires, we need to be able to really focus on key strategies. I like that you said, know what your measurements are. So that's another thing that I see also in senior living is that we'll have um, a goal, but it's not necessarily measurable or time bound or, you know, all the things that we like to see in goals. And then um, the dashboard or the traffic light diagram, you know, having that easy to see um, 
um, way to measure where are we at any given time at a glance and have that visibility on a regular basis in front of your leadership team, in front of your board. I think that's really important. And um, I agree with everything yeah. that you said as well. So thank you for those. Can I add just a few more if you don't mind? Oh, sure. One, um, don't be tempted to do this alone. Um, one of the things that is really striking me these days is how valuable partnerships are with other providers. And a lot of the most successful providers are doing it together. You know, if they're in the same geographic community, um, you know, they might want to collaborate on something like a home health initiative, um, what we used to call the adult day scene, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, PACE programs. Um, there's all kind of ways that people can really partnership with other providers, um, other community entities. Um, and really, I think partnerships are something that we need to pay a lot more attention to. <clears throat> the other thing is, I think that um, we need to educate each other. Mm. And I would say that bringing in outside experts, industry partners who have expertise, these folks are really willing to share their knowledge. And if you can tap into their expertise, you know, there's so many new initiatives out there right now, mm -hmm. like longevity, technology, and we need to be educated about these things. We need to understand blue zones are another great example. Mm -hmm. So to educate your board and your leadership team on an ongoing basis, not just when it's time to do the strategic plan. Yeah. That'll get the motors running in terms of what's our next strategic plan. Right. And I think to add new strategies as you feel it's appropriate um, and opportunistically makes a great deal of sense as well. Sure. And that education goes hand in hand with the generative thinking, right? So the more we're educating yes. and learn about learning about what's going on in other, I mean, and it can even be in, um, you know, shoulder industries or adjacent industries, but the more right. we're learning, we're going to see those opportunities and have a chance to have those generative discussions. Right. So partnerships of any kind are always good. And um, I do believe that we can learn a lot from a partner. Mm hmm. Yeah, I love it. And it's definitely a key thing that's happening in senior living right now. It's, um, I think, gratifying to see that organizations are really banding together and, you know, trying to adopt a synergistic approach versus, you know, trying to do everything themselves because we have enough to do. So <laughs> I love I love that idea. Okay. Yeah. Did we get all of your recommendations in? Because I don't want to cut you well, off. Well, I'm sure more will pop okay. up. Okay. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. So... We, we talked about this a little bit, and I wonder if there's anything else that you want to add here. But, um, you know, we hear senior living providers, sometimes the leader, sometimes the board member saying, you know, we want to be innovative. We want to know that we're doing the best that we can for our residents. And that, um, in part, relies on governance, as we've already referenced, and things that our boards can be doing differently to kind of evoke that um, innovative discussion, and then as well as leadership. Did we um, did we cover that well, or do you have anything else you'd like to add there? Well, innovation is a favorite topic of mine, <laughs> so I can probably go on too long about it. I did want to mention there's two books that I love. 
you're probably familiar with these. And you can see how dog-eared. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But this is Roger Martin's work, um, The Opposable Mind. And he really talks about integrative thinking. And integrative thinking is, it's not either or, sometimes it's and. Mm -hmm. You know, we can talk about mashups or taking one concept that looks like it's maybe not in sync with another concept and somehow create something new. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important to talk about um, <clears throat> incremental innovation as well, as well as like the Eureka type of innovation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we do need more innovation at all levels, but I think incremental in innovation is also important. Mm -hmm. And that can come from your frontline workers and uh, a byproduct of getting them involved at that level and empowering them to come up with new ideas is that they become more engaged. Mm -hmm. And we know that engaged workers are five times less likely to leave the, organi the organization. So there's a really great, I think, synergy between innovation and retention mm -hmm. uh, that a lot of people don't think about. <clears throat> um, I think that uh, there's another uh, book that I'm reading as a result of a recommendation by one of my clients, Westminster Communities. You probably know Terry Rogers. Mm -hmm. uh, he's uh, such a bright light. And um, Terry has his team reading a book called Dual Transformation. And that um, is the idea that you've got to strengthen the core business, which I think a lot of organizations do pretty well. Mm -hmm. You know, they're investing in their campuses, they're coming up with wellness products, they are um, talking more about an individualized approach to uh, residents and engaging them. Mm -hmm. um, some are employing life coaches um, and really having the residents direct a lot of uh, the work of the organization. So that's all the core business mm -hmm. and that's really important to do. Um, but there is this notion that while you're doing that and you're making the core the best it can be and you are innovating, there's also a need to do a whole different focus, which would be um, considering a disruptive model that might actually cannibalize mm. <laughs> in the future, but it would be best for you to do it as opposed to someone else coming in and doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> I know of some organizations, for instance, that have home care entities, and um, they've told me that in years past, <clears throat> you know, people from the life plan side have resented the home care group because they feel like there's maybe a conflict, mm -hmm. especially if it's a home care that is more concierge level, allowing people to stay in their homes, yes. buying into a membership fee, for instance, mm -hmm. that type of thing. But what those organizations are really doing is hedging their bets. Mm -hmm. And they realize that the life plan community is not going to be for everyone. 100%. So it's been a very smart strategy for those organizations like Kendall uh, who have taken that approach. Yeah. I totally agree with you, and um, I'll let you take a drink while I just respond to that, because I do a lot of work in the continuing care at home 
um, programs, which, you know, many life plan communities, to your point, have uh, resisted even thinking about because of that fear of competition with their brick and mortar. But what you said is so true, which is we know our our consumer segment doesn't always want to move into our campus, or at least maybe they don't want to move in yet. So how can we help them make the best decision for them today and and then bring them into the community when and if they're ready? It's a way for us to serve many more, I think, and also to better serve the middle market, which we know is an underserved part of our senior community. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. I think the middle market is a huge opportunity. Home health is another Mm -hmm. huge opportunity. Um, Navigator services uh, to folks in the greater community is a real great service. People have a hard time making money on that, but there are ways to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really think that senior living operators today need to step back and what we call get on the balcony and look at all the opportunities that are truly out there and to take advantage of those. Um, One of my favorite ideas is to do something, Jennifer, called a future search. Okay. Uh, A fellow named Marvin Weisbord from the University of Pennsylvania came up with this idea years ago, and I was trained in it. I don't want to say how many years ago that (laughs) happened, but... um, It's a really great tool. It allows getting all the voices in the room. And uh, that would include, um, you know, vendors, industry partners, Mm -hmm. uh, other providers, residents, frontline employees, supervisors, executive leaders, uh, politicians, um, anybody who you think should come to the party and have their view represented. Mm -hmm. And to do like a half or a full day confab, so to speak, just so that people can put all kinds of ideas on the wall. Mm -hmm. And that's a wonderful way to innovate. And a lot of people won't go that step because they feel like, well, if I don't like the idea, I'll hurt someone's feelings. But not if you set the expectations up. And sometimes those ideas that are hatched in those kind of open forums Mm -hmm. where everyone has the freedom and the flexibility to kind of go off onto a tangent or to wonder about something that may not um, necessarily be a mainstream idea. That's where the best ideas come from. And uh, so I like the idea of doing a future search model once or twice a year just to see what you can throw up against the wall and what what might stick eventually. I also think that we need to do a better job in our field, and we have started to do this through the leadership academies, both Larry Minnick's National Academy, as well as the state affiliate academies, many of whom I've helped develop their leadership programs. Innovation is a big part of that education. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, as a field, a fairly risk-averse field. Mm -hmm. We're the second most regulated field, uh, field next to nuclear power. And so the types of folks that are attracted to this field are caregivers, mm-hmm. largely. Um, and so we have to learn innovation skills, mm-hmm. which can be taught. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have an article that I love. Um, uh, it's from the uh, Harvard Business Review called The Innovator um, DNA Skills. Okay. And there are five of them. 
Um, and, you know, teaching those five, I think, are enormously important in our leadership education today. And you can do this in your orientation. You can uh, work this into leadership development curricula. And I think that that's an important thing, too, because these skills can be taught. And there are a couple best practices with innovation, too. Um, supervisors who ask good, open-ended, uh, what I call softball questions, mm -hmm. um, are really stimulating people's thought process when they ask those kind of questions and they're inviting people to be creative. Um, there's something uh, I use as a technique, which you're obviously very familiar with, I'm sure, called the uh, six thinking hats, mm -hmm. where you can get people in a room and teach them the six modes of thinking mm -hmm. and uh, invite them to share their ideas around um, a concept that maybe is more of an adaptive challenge and not a technical challenge. Mm -hmm. So I do think that that has a lot to do with innovation. Yeah. Teaching people those skills. I love that you brought that up, that um, one, innovation skills can be um, taught and that really it's, at the end of the day, it can be part of everybody's job. And lots of people really enjoy this and it can be a way to engage um, all levels, right? Our, yeah. our employees, our residents. Um, just, you know, one final question as it relates to innovation, because, um, you know, we started out talking about the strategic plan or strategic thinking, and then the fact that many organizations want to be more innovative. And when you kind of take that on as a, a, its own strategy or its own initiative, it can be quite overwhelming, right? The ideas start flying at you, whoever that is responsible for kind of managing that process in the organization, um, because there's lots of new technologies out there that is also seen as innovation. There's lots of great ideas that will come at you from the front lines, from the residents. And so um, do you feel like it's really important for an organization to have kind of an intentional innovation process that says, or, or procedure or framework or something that says, here's how we're going to manage all these ideas and yeah. decide which ones, you know, are actually, uh, we're going to pilot or implement. Right. Um, the answer to that is yes. <laughs> I think it should have some sort of an organization around it, some sort of a system mm -hmm. put in place. Um, some people are now uh, calling themselves chief strategy officers and so that function would be part of their responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, chief growth officers often get involved in that as well. I do think that to have a roadmap of how to innovate is important. You know, uh, years ago, I had the privilege of visiting the 3M organization mm -hmm. um, in Minneapolis. <clears throat> and um, they have a really great process um, and they also have the discipline to say, you know, right now we don't have the bandwidth or the capacity or the resources to put behind this innovation. Mm -hmm. We think it's a fantastic idea. So they put it on the shelf and revisit it every so often, mm -hmm. every several months, uh, every half year or whatever, to see whether or not that idea can gain some traction yeah. with others on the team. And so I think having systems like that makes a good deal of sense. But I think also having the discipline 
of this future search idea of making sure that your um, board in particular has a chance for the generative conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and I do think that, um, you know, we need to rehaul some of our governance practices as well. Perfect. And that that will serve us in our innovation. Nice. That segues nicely into my next question. So um, you and I both do um, a lot of board development work. And in our pre-call, we talked about kind of the state of senior living boards and how and some of the best practices that are coming forward and that we're moving into. We already mentioned one, which is generative discussion. Um, but what other, what other um, guidance would you offer to senior living providers, executives, and, and even board members who might be listening to this? Okay. Well... <laughs> I might not be too popular with the board members when they hear this, but <laughs> <laughs> I think we need some term limits. Okay. Um, I definitely think that that's something that we need. I encounter uh, board members who have been with the organization for 20 years, um, and I think we need fresh blood. And that's not to say that they um, haven't really delivered on contributing great ideas in the past, But if you don't have turnover, you become stale. Mm. And so I think it's important to um, have term limits. Um, The other thing is the composition of the boards needs to be looked at. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's face it, younger people, um, you know, often are more in touch with technologies. And, um, you know, they may not have as much time and money as some of the more uh, seasoned board members do. Um, but they have other things to contribute. And so, um, you know, I think altering some of the expectations about board members um, might be helpful to us as a field. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think it's the one place, and um, I'll I'll just say this, um, you know, because it's my perspective, it's the one place where ageism is not uh, up... um, in place Mm -hmm. because most of our boards really skew older Mm -hmm. and i think that's great because you're talking to the target audience sometimes but the board members i think also um can tend to um you know just kind of ride on their laurels sometimes Mm -hmm. and they need to be bringing fresh ideas uh to the table i also think we have gotten stuck in what I'll call, you know, certain types of positions. <clears throat> Most boards have a banker, mm-hmm. a lawyer, mm-hmm. a pastor. That's not to say they shouldn't. It's just to say that why don't we bring in some tech people, mm-hmm. um, consumer goods people, and others. And I'm even going to go so far to say Maybe we should be uh, paying these folks mm-hmm. to participate on our boards. And the other thing is we shouldn't tolerate people who don't show up. Agree. Yeah. I've been on boards where we've had a hard time getting a quorum sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think to make sure that the expectations are very clear at the beginning with board members. <coughs> Excuse me. You're always going to have people who... Um, have last-minute conflicts, right? But um, 
I do think it's important to show up. Yeah. Well, and honestly, some of the things you've already spoken of, um, generative discussion, educating, um, you know, really having an innovation um, initiative, those kinds of things are going to engage people more. So they'll be more likely to show up. And then you're right, we need active um, participating board members, um, more diverse boards, as you mentioned, of all ages, all different skill sets. Um, and I'll just mention a resource here that I really like, and it's from Board Source. It's a board composition mm-hmm. matrix, and it's a great way to kind of take inventory of your current board members and their skills and even their interpersonal um, strengths, and then um, to see where you're where you're missing things that when you're going out and recruiting new board members, you can be looking uh, for those um, opportunities. Mm-hmm. Board source is a great idea, Jennifer, and they also recommend that every two years at least a board does a self-evaluation. Now, I have not seen those be real successful. (laughs) Uh, It seems to me like those should be done by an outside um, unbiased entity Mm -hmm. uh, who would come in and actually do the evaluation. Um, And so I would make that recommendation as well. Um, And um, I think another thing I would say about uh, governance is many times there are standing committees of a board. Um, I don't like that. I think that doing ad hoc committee work Mm -hmm. is more engaging and fresh as opposed to having, you know, a regular meeting um, of the finance committee or something like that. Certainly, you know, the fiduciary's responsibility is there. Um, and you have to do things annually like budgets and, and things of that nature. Um, but it, it just does seem like some of the board uh, standing committees, like strategic planning, um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of times they don't produce anything. Mm-hmm. And if you have something that's very specific, like you want the board to evaluate a new AI uh, concept uh, and how it might be used to better residents' lives, you know, that would be a cool thing mm-hmm. um, for an ad hoc committee to take up and take on. Um, if you uh, need to evaluate your CEO, that would be something that you could do um, more on an ad hoc basis as opposed to a standing committee. Mm-hmm. Again, I know my ideas are not necessarily going to be popular because we've done things a certain way for a long time, but I'm just thinking we need to be very respectful of people's time Mm -hmm. so that we're more oriented toward quality Mm -hmm. as opposed to quantity. And I have seen a lot of boards go to quarterly meetings Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, really pack a punch uh, at those meetings. Yeah. so that it's less um, daunting for people to, um, you know, show up because of conflicts and things of that nature. Right, right. Yeah, I love that. I I see that as well. One other quick thing about um, boards, and I'm I'm curious on, you you and I spoke a little bit about the fact that, you know, and you mentioned it even today, that our industry as a whole tends to be risk adverse. Our boards tend to be risk adverse. Um, The other thing that, that really is necessary at board meetings at this time in our 
you know, maturity of, uh, with all the challenges and opportunities that we have is we need to have more discipline. Um, and we need, we need to require discipline, which would be, you know, the strategic, um, plan review and the dashboards and, and, um, making comment and taking action on those and making hard decisions sometimes. I mean, sometimes in our work, um, you know, the nonprofit mission, um, comes first, but we all know no margin, no mission. So what would you say, um, about governance and, and what guidance you offer to boards around making hard decisions, being more disciplined and, and getting out of that risk adversity thought mindset? Well, um, Certainly bringing experts in to do board education, I think, is helpful. And to uh, facilitate a conversation right there Mm -hmm. when the expertise is in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, uh, you know, that's certainly one way to deal with that. Um, And, you know, you don't always have to have these conversations at board meetings. You can create an ad hoc committee to study something. And to bring a recommendation, for instance, mm-hmm. based on some research that they've done. Um, and so I think, you know, the board listening to that committee and how they got to their conclusions mm-hmm. is another way to make some hard decisions. And certainly the CEO and the executive team are going to have some thoughts. Um, and so if they need to bring something to the board, I would say bring it sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Not when it's an emergency situation, uh, but, you know, just being really transparent that, um, you know, the executive team is seeing something that's cause for concern that will require uh, a decision somewhere down the line, whether it be, um, oh, gosh, you know, we're losing market share because of our competition. We need to make you aware of this Mm -hmm. um, so that you can participate in some ideas with us. or we are losing money left and right on our skilled nursing. What can we do to, um, you know, salvage this um, so that we don't lose our shirt? Mm-hmm. Um, whatever it is, I think bring it up sooner rather than later whenever you see the beginning of a red flag as opposed to, Waiting. you know, <laughs> urgent, uh, you know, kind of situation where the board you know, doesn't feel like they had ample time to really think. Yeah, I I just want to underscore that, right? I see that so much in our industry, you probably too, where boards and leadership wait too long to kind of put up the flag and say, hey, we have a problem here. Let's not wait as long. Let's start having these discussions sooner so that we can take action. Yeah, and maybe that comes... And CEOs have to look at those board members as partners. Mm -hmm. Agree. And... uh, for a number of years, I think a lot of CEOs, I don't see it much anymore, but for a long time, CEOs were kind of putting on the dog for the board to make themselves look good. Mm-hmm. In fact, I remember a situation years ago when um, one of our CEOs got their resident satisfaction scores and they weren't good. <laughs> Uh-oh. And uh, the CEO just said, I can't show this to my board. Well, you you have to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's... Why don't we get to the root of the problem as to why there's so much dissatisfaction? Um, and, and you know, I, I just think that we have to be more proactive. Yeah. And we can't be window dressing for the board. Right. The board is there to really help solve problems. 
Agree, agree, perfect. So let's talk um, about employee engagement, which I know is another okay. um, Im, you know passion of yours. And you just recently wrote a McKnight Senior Living article, and you said that um, you know recent survey results show that our supervisory level, which is so important, so key to employee retention, um, are more engaged than they maybe ever have been, or certainly um, you know post COVID. But they're also more burned out. They're more tired, <laughs> and so yeah. you know. The care, the care and loving of our supervisors is so important. What um, recommendations do you have there, or what other takeaways from from that research? Would you like to offer? Yeah. Well, it might sound counterintuitive that they're engaged and burn out at the same time, mm -hmm. but um, that ambiguity exists. <clears throat> um, so, when people are engaged, obviously they care deeply about the organization and its mission. Mm -hmm. But burnout can happen simultaneous to that when workloads aren't managed or the people who supervise the supervisors aren't taking care of the well-being of those supervisors. Mm -hmm. um, and so <laughs> I think that the supervisors are the glue. I think they are the uh, most important function within the whole organization um, because they are so tied to turnover um, and really amazingly uh, influential when it comes to turnover. 57% mm -hmm. uh, of our employees, almost one, six out of every 10, uh, leave because of the supervisor, mm -hmm. not because of the organization. Right. Um, and that's a huge number. So our managers really need the support so that they can re-engage. And some of that support is around schedules. Some of it is around um, making sure that there are enough supervisors. I've seen people supervise up to 50 individuals. Now that's crazy. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you can give people individualized attention when they have that many direct reports. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so I think managing that type of thing is important too. Mm -hmm. Um, I think role clarity, making sure that um, managers understand their locus of control mm -hmm. and their boundaries and empowering them to make decisions so that they don't have to run back to, you know, the leadership team all the time, that they are trusted and um, that they have an individualized experience. Um, and so, you know, if they need flex time, if they... Uh, need uh, support for mental health, mm -hmm. uh, family situations, and what have you. Um, I think all those things go a long way in terms of engaging our uh, supervisors. Yeah. What what a great message. And I think sometimes, you know, we were talking about the forgotten middle of our consumer, but maybe the supervisors <laughs> are the forgotten middle of our employment yeah, structure. Yeah. And, yeah. and we just a little, um, attention to their needs, whatever they are. Is it work-life balance? Is it workload? Is it, um, right. you know, things that help them manage their other life outside work? Um, that, those things can go a long way. And to your point, will greatly reduce our turnover at the frontline level. And, right. and of those valuable supervisors. So great message. I love that you shared that. 
with us? Well, I definitely think that um, our supervisors are showing a lot of loyalty to the organizations. Um, and we're having a hard time, I think, with uh, recruiting EDs. Um, <clears throat> but the middle manager supervisors um, are certainly hanging in there with us, according to what we see. Mm -hmm. That's good. Good news. So I know um, as we as we kind of wrap this up, you do um, executive coaching. We talked about you forming leadership academies and doing a lot of leadership development. What uh, what would you like to tell us today about just leadership development um, as a whole? Or maybe I know you work a lot with really supporting women in leadership roles. What 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 speaks to you to tell us about today? Thank you for this opportunity. I'm really passionate about leadership, about executive coaching. Um, so many of our organizations now are doing massive transformations and change management initiatives. And I think what's important is that CEOs feel supported. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, they're, it's a very lonely job. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> and, uh, so I have created something called the um, Executive Leadership Journey, which is uh, a female CEO peer coaching experience. And uh, it's been really valuable to help women uh, who are in the C-suite, whether it's CEO or you know chief strategy officer or chief human resources or marketing officers, um, it's important for them to feel like they have what we call a wolf pack mm -hmm. of other uh, females in the field um, who are able to share information and best practices with them and just make them feel as if they're not in it alone. Mm -hmm. And um, that's been one of the great byproducts of the Larry Menix Leadership Academy through Leading Age, which is now in its 17th year, I believe. Wow. Um, and that is that people feel supported mm -hmm. because they have these cohorts of, um, you know, others who are in the field who have gone through the same struggles they've gone through. And I remember asking uh, the first, second, and third class as they left that uh, leadership experience, you know, has this made an impact on your life? And they said, absolutely, it was life-changing. Mm -hmm. Curriculum is strong, but in addition to the curriculum, it was the network of uh, colleagues that were created through that experience. And that was a byproduct that I don't think uh, we anticipated, mm -hmm. which was very, very helpful to these folks. And, you know, years and years and years later, they're still very close to one another, relying on each other for information and uh you know, feeling like they're in it together. Yeah. And is that a, um, the executive leadership journey, is that a rolling <clears throat> application process or is it? Pretty much. Okay. Um, you know, I try to craft and curate an experience that I believe will really resonate um, with C-suite leaders. Um, and I do it on an as-needed basis. It's not like it happens, you know, every fall or every spring. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it is, to use your word, kind of organic, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, we've had two cohorts go through so far, and uh, they report that it has been 
a, a real game changer for them in terms of just um, knowing how to negotiate through some of the challenges in that C-suite. Mm-hmm. I, I wish um, I had had an opportunity to be in something like this when I was in the C-suite. Um, because, mm-hmm. yeah, you you don't know the challenges that you're going to encounter until you get there. And, um, you know, speaking of board source, I was at a training recently where they talked, they talked about something I hadn't heard of before. Maybe you have, but we've all heard of the glass ceiling for women, right? But they speak about now a glass cliff where, especially when, um, male dominated (laughs) boards and on some, you know, we already spoke about kind of this, um, that we have, um, still in senior living, a lot of older, and tend to be male-dominated boards. They bring in a female senior leader and a uh, CEO or another executive, and um, the standards that they're held to are sometimes different. And certainly, they oh boy, yes. they don't get the support. <laughs> and so that was the reference to the glass cliff that we have to make sure that we're supporting them um, in all ways in those roles. And especially when you have, um, I I found out from this training, a woman of color that that glass cliff becomes even more precarious. So um, Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you're supporting women in leadership in this way. So congratulations and kudos. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, that's nice of you to thank me, but I will tell you, I get every bit as much out of it as they do um, because it is a peer coaching experience, Mm -hmm. which means that we're all helping each other. Mm -hmm. I'm just facilitating the process. Yeah. That's awesome. That's so awesome. All right, Michelle. Well, we've spoken about so many awesome topics today, and I I could go on forever, but um, I think we should probably bring this podcast to an end. So will you tell us how, tell our listeners how they can find you? What's the best place to um, connect with you if they're not already connected? Well, um, certainly uh, folks can go on to my LinkedIn page. Okay. Um, It's Michelle Holleran, and uh, you'll probably find me fairly easily. There's not a whole lot of other Michelle Hollerins. So um, that's probably the best way to do it. Okay. And we will absolutely link your LinkedIn profile in our show notes and make sure that people can reach you. So I so appreciate the opportunity today. It's been fun talking with you. Yes, I've had a lot of fun. And I know our listeners are going to get a lot of value out of um, all of your expertise and guidance that you offered. So thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Jennifer Drago, and you've been listening to Senior Living Visionaries podcast and radio show, where we explore cutting-edge ideas and breakthroughs that are shaping the future of the senior living industry. Please subscribe to be notified each time a new episode drops at SeniorLivingVisionaries.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Senior Living Visionaries podcast and radio show where we showcase the leaders and innovators in the industry who are pushing the boundaries and setting the stage for the future in senior living and services. Join us next time as we share the bold ideas and breakthroughs of the industry's most forward-thinking leaders here on Senior Living Visionaries. You've been listening to the Senior Living Visionaries podcast and radio show, where we showcase the leaders and innovators in the industry who are pushing the boundaries and setting the stage for the future in senior living and services. Join us next time as we share the bold ideas and breakthroughs of the industry's most forward-thinking leaders here on Senior Living Visionaries.